Okay, good evening. We're going to pull you away from the Galilean wedding. You can read that paperwork later. And uh, we're going to bring you back here to Romans chapter 9. <laughs> no, actually, uh, if you get a chance to get that information from Leanne, Leanne, make copies. Uh, very interesting, uh, worthwhile reading material. Once again, just many, many, many indications that uh, how we see things looking for the future as far as a pre-tribulational rapture, just all kinds of reasons to have hope and understand that what we're teaching is what the Bible teaches. But uh, yeah, tonight we find ourselves in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 to 33. Let me read those and then we will uh, pray and get started. Starting in verse 25. As he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What should we say then, Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news about Ben uh, not needing the stint. We pray, Lord, that you might continue to give him grace as he watches over his health and his doctors uh, give him uh, instruction that he would follow and that he would uh, be feeling pretty good here before long and be able to join us again. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the rain. I know uh, with the mowing of lawns that uh, this is needed and it's appreciated. Thank you now for a time to look into your word. We ask, Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the things that you have for us and that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ for your honor and glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, you'll notice in your intro, as a reminder, chapters 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with the subject of Israel. Now, um, one of the reasons why I repeat this, it uh, wasn't too long ago that uh, we were teaching this down at Blues Creek Chapel, and uh, one of our one of the people that were going to church there, he's a retired pastor and um, covenant theologian. Um, he he doesn't believe that God is going to work with Israel again in the sense that we do. Oh yeah, you know, but it's all about the church. Uh, and someone else went down there and taught. And they, looking at chapter 9, saw that Israel was Esau and the church was Jacob. Now, this, this is what I mean by you have to do some spiritual jumping jacks 
to come to some of these conclusions. Now, these two men, and by the way, the guy that was in the audience was, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, that's the only time out of chapters 9 through 11 that he enjoyed himself. Uh, he, he did find another church to go to that was more in line with his beliefs, as he should have anyway. Um, the, these are still good brothers and sisters in the Lord, but you cannot read chapters 9, 10, and 11 in a literal, historical, grammatical uh, way and come away thinking that God is not going to work with Israel again. And, and even tonight's passage shows that a remnant is going to be saved. Now, we've already seen where all of Israel is going to be saved. But Israel is defined as those who come by faith and that's not talking about Gentiles, it's talking about Israel, okay? So these three chapters are about uh, God's dealing with Israel. He's going to bring them to the place where they're going to repent, and they're going to be his chosen people, sons of God, the whole bit. They're going to uh, be a part of the uh, new covenant that we are presently getting to enjoy participating in, but God said he was going to make it with them, not with us. Uh, we are definitely participating in it, but it is for them. So, uh, tonight's lesson, Israel's unbelief is consistent with prophetic revelation and God's prerequisite of faith. This is part three and four out of the four parts in uh, chapter nine. So let's start with uh, letter A. It's consistent with prophetic revelation. Uh, notice he goes back to Hosea. And he's also going to be dealing with quotations from uh, Isaiah. So if we're going to look at Hosea, uh, the first thing you need to do is you need to understand a little bit about what's going on with Hosea. Uh, God commands uh, Hosea to go take for yourself a wife of harlotry. Now, God has a reason for this. This wife was going to be representative of Israel. Israel had been committing spiritual adultery, well, if you want to get technical, at least from the Exodus, okay? The, the first opportunity they get, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. We don't know if he's alive or whatever. Aaron, make us a god. Okay, so he makes him a god. And, and then, of course, when he's confronted on it, it's kind of like, you know, they threw their stuff in the a pot and out popped this idol, Kind of like, wow, Aaron, stand up and be a good leader there. <laughs> but uh, uh, Israel has been involved in spiritual adultery, idolatry, off and on throughout, if you will, the centuries. Let's say the Exodus is somewhere around 1400 and change, uh, maybe as uh, far back as 1500. They're in the land uh, 400 years later. Um, excuse me. 40 years later, so they're in the land for 400 years. They get their first king. Uh, in that 400-year period of time, you've got Joshua and Judges. What's Judges all about? Seven cycles of falling into idolatry, God uh, bringing the punishment or the justice deserved, and then them finally figuring out, hey, God, we were kind of you know only kidding, and it's kind of like he sends them a judge. <clears throat> So you have seven cycles of this. Uh, during um, Saul's reign, a couple things went well. During David's reign, more went well. During Solomon's reign, by the 
By the time Solomon is king, there's already high places. Now, Solomon actually worshiped on these high places in his early years before the temple uh, was built. So they were not only a place to worship God, they were also a place to worship uh, other gods, and they, those other gods were worshiped. Uh, and by the time Solomon is done with his reign, he is bowing the knee to just about every god you can think of. And that is 900-ish. Well, by the time Hosea and Isaiah are speaking, 700 and something, they've already seen Israel, the northern ten tribes, hauled off by Assyria. They, they've seen God's judgment come upon Assyria because uh, I mean, uh, from Assyria come upon Israel because uh, out of 19 to 21 kings that Israel had, not a one of them godly. All of them ungodly, setting up idols all over the place, etc. Judah, they had about 20 kings also over the, uh, the same amount of time as well as the next uh, 100, 120 some odd years. And they had some good, some not so good. But uh, Isaiah and Hosea are speaking, probably Hosea first, but Isaiah shortly thereafter. Uh, so uh, her character, Gomer, was the name of the wife, the wife of harlotry, is representative of Israel. Now, some people say she was already a harlot. Some people say after marriage she became. Uh, no one knows. Bible doesn't tell us. We know in her character, it was already there, and it shows up at least after they're married. Uh, it's obvious. Um, she had three children with Hosea, and God named all three of them in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, 6 and 8 and 9. Uh, let me read those for you. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Uh, in verse 6, uh, And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And then verses 8 and 9, Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Lo uh, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So Hosea, his marriage is a lesson. Take warning, take heed, or what has happened to Israel is ultimately going to happen to the uh, whole country. So uh, notice uh, God's promises. God will restore Israel someday. Uh, verse 10 says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So there are, is going to be a time when God is going to restore Israel. 
Uh, in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Verse 19, I will betroth uh, you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. Now, because uh, Gomer had gone off into harlotry, ultimately, she ends up on the slave market. Now, if you're the husband, got to care for three kids. The wife's been out there playing the harlot, and she's on the slave market. What do you do? Well, I hope she gets bought by someone who's going to treat her mean. You know, that, that's, that would be the normal uh, male fleshly thing. God says, hey, I want you to go buy her. Huh? <laughs> He has to not only go buy her, but then I want you to bring her home. I want you to clean her up, and I want you to woo her. I want you to romance her and win her love back to you. Uh, you know, this didn't work out too good the first time. <laughs> that would have been my complaint. Uh, and, and, of course, he did that. But that was all, again, representative of what God intended to do with the nation of Israel. And yes, that would include the northern ten tribes that he had already said, eh. okay? So God will restore Israel someday, but for now, Israel will be treated as not my people. And God will treat Gentiles as his people. First Peter 2.10, um, who once were not a people, but now the people of God. He's talking about Gentiles here. Once they were not a people. Notice it doesn't say, not my people. It says you were not a people, but now you're the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So uh, in the meantime, God is going to treat the Gentiles as his people. Letter B, God's promise for the future of Israel. I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not Beloved, that's Hosea 2.23. Also in Hosea 1.10, I already read it, but, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Now, now think about it with me for just a minute. My people, okay? This is ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant. Uh, let me read a couple of verses for you. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And I should have had more there in it. But basically he says, they're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. Okay. Uh, Ezekiel 37, 27. My tabernacle sh uh, also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So you have two uh, prophets saying that ultimately the concept of them being his people again is going to happen, and it happens in the fulfillment of the new covenant. How about the sons of God? Well, uh, these are all New Testament verses, but think with me for just a minute. We're participating in a covenant that God said that he's making with the house of Israel and the house of uh, Judah, and this is what we get. But as many as receive him... To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, Romans 8, 14, just a chapter back, uh, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Philippians 2, 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, 
children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then 1 John 3, 1 and 2, most of us know this one. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." So if we are sons of God, based on the fact that we're participating in the new covenant, what's going to happen to Israel, his children, when they finally get to participate in the new covenant? Obviously, they're going to be children of God, sons of God, just like he says there in Hosea 1.10. So that brings us to Isaiah. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Uh, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And that's found in Isaiah 10, verses 22 through 23. Uh, The word for Isaiah crying out is kradzu, to croak as a raven, to scream, to call out, to shriek, exclaim. It carries the sense of great emotion. So he's not just making a proclamation. He's kind of screaming it out there with uh, all of his vim and vigor, if you will. As far as uh, I, I, a remnant will be saved, the remnant word there is katalema, uh, a remainder, a few, a remnant. Uh, it is interesting If you ever read the Left Behind series, uh, they bring out a lot of Old Testament Scripture to uh, help you understand what's going on through the tribulation. Don't know that I agree with all of the details, but when you come to Scripture, uh, we're not arguing, okay? And the reality is, is approximately, only approximately about a third of what would be considered Israel is actually going to be saved Israel. Two-thirds ultimately are going to reject. Uh, So uh, a remnant shall be saved. And then letter B, another quote from Isaiah. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, in my version, uh, by the way, that's a quotation from Isaiah 1.9. In my version, it said, left us offspring. Uh, the word there is sperma, something sown, a seed, offspring, a remnant, again, or an issue. Uh, notice, Uh, Israel is divinely judged and utterly destroyed. In Matthew 24, 22, it says, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now let me read you Isaiah 1, 9 again. Unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had left us a seed, an offspring, We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. So the concept of ultimately uh, destroying Israel, yeah, that's going to happen during that tribulation period of time. We got to hear a little bit about it this morning uh, in Pastor's message. Notice only God's grace prevents the total destruction of the entire world. Not just Israel. 
uh, uh, you brought up the islands this morning. Yeah. I mean, think, think about it with me for just a minute. There's going to be an earthquake so great that there's not going to be any islands left, if I understand it correctly. They are all sinking. So if you live on an island, not a continent, an island, you might think about moving before this whole thing happens, or at least get saved so you can be raptured before the whole thing happens. But, I mean, think about it. Indonesia. How many islands in Indonesia? 7,000 approximately. Okay, we think of Hawaii, Bermuda, the Caribbean. That's a few islands. 7,000 islands in Indonesia. How many people? Millions upon millions. Now, that's if they've even lived to that point because how many people are going to die? You know, I, I, I've told people ever, ever since I've been studying the book of Revelation that during the tribulation, you got the rapture, okay, so you're going to get rid of a bunch of believing people. How many? <laughs> On average in the world, we're talking about 2% believing rate. And that might be high because though you would consider a lot of nations maybe kind of Christian, um, if there's always tares among the wheat, can we say that at Edgemont Bible Church there might be people that are not believing? Oh, they would tell you they believe everything that you believe but they're not trusting in Christ alone. Now, if that's the case here, what is it around the world? But let's say 2%. Okay, so now you're down to 98%. And then you've got your seven seals, you've got your seven trumpets, you've got your seven bowls. And unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom, and we would have been destroyed like Gomorrah. How were they destroyed? Even a woman that was walking away from the place turned around and looked, became a pillar of salt. There's no survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, God actually destroyed four cities. There was five of them. And Lot said, I I don't want to go to the mountains. Let let us go to the little town there, Zoar. You know, let us go there. Well, whatever you're going to do, get going because this thing's coming. And don't look back. And so they're on their way. Destruction comes, they get into Zoar, and everybody is looking at them like, this is because of you. Where'd they go? To the mountains. Kind of like, boy, it would have been just so much better if you had gone to the mountains in the first place, because instead of five cities being destroyed, only four were. (sighs) Well, same thing's going to be true of the world as a whole. And I've told people, 75 to 90% of the world's population is going to be slaughtered in the tribulation. That's probably a low estimate. Okay? Unless the days had been shortened. And it's shortened for the elect's sake. We're going to keep some people alive because someone's got to go into this kingdom that I promised to Israel. (laughs) Okay? So... Only God's grace prevents the total destruction of the entire world. That brings us to letter B, consistent with God's prerequisite of faith in verses 30 through 33. God's prerequisite of faith is not inconsistent with his sovereignty. One of the things that people try and do is they want to put God's uh, election uh, in contrast or in against free will of man. 
And the reality is, is from a human perspective, it seems contradictory or it seems to be like two railroad tracks that are going off into the distance and they never seem to meet until that point at the end. And you can't see that. So obviously they don't meet. The reality is, is from the divine perspective, this is not a problem. Notice the notes here. From human reason, they seem may seem contradictory or mutually exclusive, and yet both are clearly taught in Scripture. I mean, you got Ephesians 1.4, elect from before the foundation of the world. I mean, does that not mean that God chose? Yeah, it does. Uh, in fact, some uh, some will say chosen instead of elect. It's the same word, okay? The reality is, is God chose some to be saved. Again, we're all in this stream heading toward destruction, and God can reach in and save some and uh, do all that's necessary so that they are believing what he has ta- uh, taught. They're still doing their part, but he's the one that... Uh, ultimately chose. So both are clearly taught in Scripture. When one is taught to the exclusion of the other, the gospel is perverted. If it's just free will, anyone can be saved. All they've got to do is believe. You've kind of missed the fact that, well, God can't be sovereign at that point because He's not in control of everything. He's just in control of kind of what happens before, kind of what happens after. Uh, but people can still kind of mess that up. And, and believe me, that was somewhat taught in some of the Bible colleges I went to. Uh, Naaman came up with a plan to destroy Israel. God had to come up with another plan to stop it from happening. Kind of like, no, there wasn't a plan B. Naaman was part of plan A. God was trying to show himself to be powerful, just like he was with uh, Pharaoh how many years previous. So um, both need to be taught because both are taught. And then God does not save people without faith in his son and his finished work. Uh, In other words, God in choosing people doesn't alleviate them from having to believe. You know, one of the things I find, the people that like the free will side of things, they want one of their friends to be saved. Okay. Live it, preach it, and let God weed them out. They still have to believe. Yeah, but you're saying they can't. No, I'm not saying that. I don't know if that person's elect. You don't know that they're not. Live it, preach it, let God weed them out. Uh, that's the reality of the matter in, in this thing. They still have to believe. And let's face it, <clears throat> as logical as the gospel is and as totally understandable as it is, you can preach it to people and they will look at you and go, now, now, sorry, I ain't gonna believe that. Why not? That's how twisted sin has made us. Something that is so simple. And that's why I say, live it before them, preach it to them, and let God weed them out because ultimately that's the only way it's going to happen. And notice I say, without faith in his son and his finished work. Uh, Almost everybody I know knows something about Jesus dying on the cross for sin. 
most of them never talk about the resurrection. Without the resurrection, what does Paul say? We above all people are without hope. The resurrection is the most important thing. According to Romans 1.4, it proves that he is God. That's his person. According to Romans 4.25, it is through the resurrection that we are justified. It's not through his death. It's through his resurrection. Sin's been paid for. Faith in him brings justification. We're declared righteous. Wow. So, him and his finished work. Okay, that's number two. Are Gentiles saved differently than Jews? That's the question that ultimately Paul is asking here. Uh, Notice the means of salvation has always been by attaining righteousness, which is by faith. Now, Genesis 15, 6, most of us are familiar with it. And Abraham, he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay? Uh, Romans 4, 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, there's an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse, both basically saying the same thing. Verse 9, chapter 4 of Romans. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Notice, it wasn't his circumcision, it was faith. Circumcision doesn't happen for a couple of more chapters back there in the book of Genesis. Verse 22 of Romans 4, And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. And we've already seen it was by faith. James 2.23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now in James chapter 2, your Jehovah's Witnesses visitors love to bring up that a man is justified by works. When you look at James chapter 2, we see here that thus it was fulfilled, it was completed, that he believed and he was credited with righteousness. What was completed? After 40 years, you get to see faith lived out. Now, It had been lived out, but here God was asking him to do something that was beyond the pale, if you will. And because he believed what God had said, all of what God had said, not just one little thing. Look, he said the seed's coming through Isaac. So if it's coming through Isaac and now he tells me I got to kill Isaac, I know he's got to raise him from the dead. I don't know about you, but when I read the story, I'm sitting there going, what? Because I totally forgot about what Abraham didn't forget about. But Abraham is remembering this close to 40 years after he's believed God. So this is something that has gone through him over and over and over again. So when the time comes, passing the test is not the difficulty. Because God said, therefore, God has to. So his justification by works was because he believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. It wasn't still up in the air if he did enough good things, i.e. Jehovah's Witnesses or any number of other religions who believe that a person can be saved by works. 
So he goes on to say, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, the word that did not uh, pursue there, uh, to pursue, to run swiftly after, to follow. It is used of hunting, okay? And now we can uh, go talk to uh, Jeff Null or Travis Montgomery. Uh, I know Travis likes to sit in a tree and let the deer come to him. Uh, but uh, I know Jeff's been in a, a variety of places where he wasn't sitting in a tree. I uh, love that picture of uh, Shelby with the bear that she shot. And Jeff goes, I didn't get one this time. <laughs> but the idea of hunting is you're going out and you're looking for that thing. Okay? And that's the idea. The, the Gentiles did not pursue. They weren't going and looking for it. What were they not looking for? Righteousness. Romans 10.20 says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Now, if we aren't talking about the sovereignty of God in moving his plan to where Gentiles are being saved. Now, I say moving, but in reality, what was Israel supposed to be? They were supposed to be light to the Gentiles. And they said, okay, you Gentiles, you need to come on over here and you need to go through all the things we went through, follow all the rules we follow, do everything like we do, and you're going to be a second-class citizen. You're not going to be able to come in here to the courtyard. You're going to have to stay on that side of the fence. But you can be one of us if you want to. It's kind of like, yeah, who wants to be the second-class citizen? Uh, but the uh, Gentiles, they did not pursue it, and yet... They attain to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Why? Because God sought them out. Yes, they, he still brought them to a point where they were going to uh, believe, but it wasn't because they were looking for it. It goes on, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, Romans 10.2, we'll see next week, Lord willing, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. What was the purpose of the Old Testament law? Uh, not the Ten Commandments. That's ultimately fulfilled in loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The purpose of all that other stuff, and the Ten Commandments is included in that, was to show them you can't do it. And yet, according to the law, I was blameless. I was perfect. I did it all right externally. Internally, the law said, thou shalt not covet. And I found myself coveting all over the place, Paul says in Romans chapter 7. So obviously, they couldn't do it. They just thought, if we get the outward right, we'll be okay. No, no. They had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. And then uh, Romans eleven seven. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So not only did they not find it, but they couldn't see how to find it either. Uh, notice they have not obtained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Now, Paul has already made mention of, we've already made mention of in the book of Romans. The example they had the father, Abraham. Yeah, but he didn't have the law, exactly. 
and yet he found himself in a place where he was righteous before God. So it's not the law that gets you into that place. It's having the faith of Abraham. And they, they just couldn't get it. They didn't seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law. Uh, Galatians 5.4 says, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now, trusting in your birthright or in good works, birthright being for the Jews, we're Jewish, we're children of Abraham. Uh, nope, not going to do it for you. Uh, both of those were ultimately works of the law. And notice it goes on to say, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. 1 Corinthians 1, and 23, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Greeks, foolishness. Now, has the message changed? We preach Christ crucified. Jews still hung up on it. Now, now, that's not our Messiah. Our Messiah would have come in here, taken over Rome. That's not the one. What about everybody else? You people, you need a crutch like religion. See, it's foolishness to them. They've been blinded. Lest they see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ and be saved, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says. So whole point being is the Jews, they ended up stumbling at the stumbling stone. He goes on to say, as it is written, again, he's quoting from Isaiah 28.16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone. Now, the idea of him being a stumbling stone, receiving, refusing to receive their Messiah because he didn't meet their understanding of the Messiah. He also ends up being a rock of offense. They're refusing to receive their Messiah because he declared their works to be worthless. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, the builders being the religious leaders of the day, he has become the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone is once it's set, the rest of the building is square and plumb as it follows what's done for the chief cornerstone there. Uh, Isaiah 8, 14, he will be as a sanctuary but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Um, how many of the disciples came from Jerusalem? How many of them came from Galilee? One from Jerusalem. Guess who it was? No. Judas. Those big city boys, can't trust them. Go back to the rural, talk to the country people. <laughs> They'll do you a whole lot better. Uh, Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, Luke uh, two thirty-four. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against. 
Okay, and then of course, First Peter two, six through eight. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So uh, you can see where uh, he's a stumbling stone because he wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. He's a rock of offense because he said, hey, guys, you're totally missing it. You know, he even said, when the, when the Pharisees speak concerning Moses, you need to listen to them. But don't do as they do. They believed right, but they didn't do right as far as their daily actions went. And that brings us to the last point here. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Romans 10.11 says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Uh, this is actually a quote from Isaiah, uh, but let me get there first. Notice, faith is the human responsibility to God's grace that saves. Consider the two diagnostic questions. If you were to die today, what would happen to you? 99% of my benevolence people that come in say, well, I, I hope to go to heaven, or I'm going to heaven. Out of those 99%, every now and again, I'll get someone, to, you know, I'm going to hell. But that's very, very few. Out of the 99% that think they're going to heaven, the second question, if you were to die today, and if you were to stand before the Lord, if he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And I will get every answer under the sun except because Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. Being God, being fully righteous, he died to pay for my sins, rose again, and it's only by faith in him. I, to get that out of Christians, I almost have to pull it out. Every now and again, I'll get someone that you know, they, they say something just uh, the right way where it's kind of like, okay, let's pull on this one a little bit more and see what we come up with. And finally, we'll get, well, Jesus died for my sins. It's usually, well, I'm forgiven. Well, why would God forgive you? Well, Jesus died for me. I go, so you worship a dead guy? And they go, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, and I, I do this on purpose because I, I want them to tell me why they think they're going to heaven. But again, the majority of the people, because I would give my, the shirt off my back if someone else needed it, even though they're there because they have a need. And it might be because they gave too much somewhere, not necessarily to this person that needed a shirt off their back. But um, So faith is still a human responsibility to God's grace that saves uh, the word here, uh, put to shame, is katachuno. I don't know. That's a, that's a good Greek word there. Uh, it means to shame down, to disgrace, to put to the blush, to confound, to dishonor, or make ashamed. Now, think about it with me. When the world says, you're a fool for believing in Jesus, do you feel ashamed? They may put us in a, a place where 
people are shaming us, but we're not shamed because we have the truth, okay? But uh, Isaiah 28, 16, uh, he who, uh, whoever believes on him will not act hastily. That, that's the Hebrew word shush or, or something like that. To hurry, to be a- eager with excitement or enjoyment, to make haste, uh, to hasten, uh, to be ready. Um, the, the idea here is they're not going to act uh, out of character, okay? Uh, because to act hastily means you haven't thought it through. You're not worried about the ramifications uh, of, uh, oh, no, it might not happen the way I think. No, no, they're, they're ready to wait on the Lord, okay? That's the idea of uh, whoever believes on him will not act irrationally. They will not be put to shame. doesn't matter what the world says. Why? Uh, because though he's a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling for them, uh, he is the one that we're putting our trust in. And we know that uh, whatever we've committed to him, he is able to keep it until that day. So that is chapter 9. Again, obviously, as you read through it, just verse by verse, he is obviously talking about Israel. He is not replacing Israel with the church. Now we still have two more chapters to go. We'll see what happens. Uh, Right now, God's plan is the church. But if you're looking careful, uh, Ezekiel, you've got your valley of dry bones. Um, Have the bones been put together? There's muscle on the bones, there's sinew, there's, there's flesh on it, but they're still not alive. There's no spiritual life in Israel yet. And, and those that are believers, they're, they're part of the church. They're not Israel, even though they're Jewish. They're part of the church. But take the church out of the way, bring Israel through the tribulation, and some of them are going to figure it out. And then they're going to look on him whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn for like one who's lost his son. They're going to realize, dude, you know, that kind of a thing. All right. Well, uh, we're out a little bit early tonight, so the rain is over. You can go outside and enjoy the sunset. But in the meantime, uh, we're looking forward to Wednesday night where we get to see a little bit of the New Testament talking about cosmic Geography. There we go. (laughs) I knew there was a word in there I couldn't remember. Well, let's pray and we'll let you go. Father, we do thank you. Thank you that you made these promises to Israel and you are going to fulfill these promises to Israel. We thank you, the Lord, that we get to be a part of it. We get to watch it happen. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be a big TV screen in heaven or anything, but we know that ultimately we get to be a part of all that you have uh, planned out. Lord, we look forward to the day when Jesus will come back. In the meantime, give us grace to walk abiding in your word, abiding in Christ, so that we may honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have a good God-honoring week. See you Wednesday evening.